Well, uh, I'd invite you to pray with me. Father, I am grateful for who you are. Lord, that uh, you would do such amazing things throughout history, that you would uh, take the opportunity to introduce us and help us see who Jesus is, that you would uh, craft mountains and um, lay out creation and work out history to point us to the truth of what it is that you are accomplishing in the world. This is really, really good stuff that we get to be a part of. Lord, and so uh, my ask this morning is we talk about uh, the wonder of who you are is that you would well up awe and worship and praise and excitement and joy at who it is that you are. Lord, that doesn't negate the very challenging realities that many of us are facing. But we have such, such good news worth repeating. So thank you for that. And Lord, keep that moving us forward this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, you can open up in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, I invite you to open up there. And uh, as you are opening up there, we're going to play an imagination game together. So I want you to imagine that you are going to write a letter to today's culture to introduce Jesus to them. And you really uh, kind of, as you are crafting this letter and helping them understand Jesus, you have two big goals. So you, your first goal is to present Jesus as he really is, like staying true to who he actually is. You don't want to kind of fudge anything. You want to make sure that everything is clear about who Jesus is. But at the same time, you kind of want to meet people in a place of felt need. You want to identify with them in some way, help uh, recognize a problem that they also might recognize. So as you kind of take these two realities and put them together, uh, what kind of things would you put in your letter? As you try to uh, both meet today's culture and uh, talk about who Jesus actually is and bring these two things together, what would you talk about? Like maybe you would think about how You know, today there is a problem that everybody recognizes, no matter what side of the political aisle you might fall on, that we live in an age of media misinformation or even disinformation. But, uh, so that is true, and that's something we recognize, but uh, there is in Jesus something that is verifiably true. Uh, Maybe you would address the weight of fear that currently sits upon society. Right, and then uh, along with that, you would recognize the transcendent peace that Jesus offers. Maybe that's what you would emphasize. Maybe you would highlight the incredible rhetoric of division that exists today and how Jesus actually comes with a goal of real reconciliation. Right, but at the end of the day, what you would do is you would do something to identify with your audience uh, about some kind of dark or troublesome reality, and then you would offer Jesus as the real answer. So uh, today, we are launching a three-week preaching series, and the title of this series is Jesus in an Insidious World. Jesus in an Insidious World, because what we are recognizing is that there are dark and troublesome realities everywhere, and it is significant that Jesus has chosen to enter those dark and troublesome realities. 
So kind of just to grasp the core of our focus, I want to define a term for us. That term is insidious, and this definition comes to us from the Oxford Dictionary. So this is what insidious means. Insidious is something that is proceeding in a gradual, subtle way, but with harmful effects. Proceeding in a gradual, subtle way with harmful effects. So I want to give an example of this. I have a theory about arcades. Uh, maybe I haven't got to share this with you yet, but this is, uh, this is kind of just my theory about arcades that exist today. So uh, arcades start as something that are, are fun and innocent for kids, right? Uh, that's just kind of, all like kids just love arcades, right? They love the bright lights. They love to play games, right? This, this kind of uh, hits them in a fun and innocent spot. But the longer you stay in an arcade, you realize that you are kind of entranced by this experience because two things happen at the same time. The, the flashing lights and the kind of push to succeed at the game create a surge of adrenaline in you. And then when you actually do succeed, you get a little hit of dopamine in your brain. And so before long, you're sitting in this arcade and you realize that you are kind of, your brain is actually getting addicted to the experience of being at the game and the arcade. And then, uh, like, if you're a kid, right, you have this impulse inside of you to keep playing the game over and over and over again, especially if you, like, get just to the edge of beating the game but can't quite beat the game. You need to kind of take the next turn and take the next turn. And so the last few times I've been in arcades, especially recently, I don't know if you've been in an arcade recently, but I've been, I've been actually really struck at how similar the games look to slot machines. Like the, the similarity, the way these things are laid out, the way they put LED colors around the edge of the machine, like these things appear very attractive. And you know what's interesting is that slot machines rely on the same psychology and the same concept to pe keep people sitting at their games. They attract you with lights, with interesting pictures. They give you the illusion that you actually have control over the game, and they keep you pushing the button until you win big. So here's my crazy conspiracy theory. Take it or leave it, whatever you think. I actually think that like casinos and adult gaming companies invest their money in arcades. I think, now I have no evidence to prove this whatsoever, but the link of these two things, like this, uh, the arcades kind of reinforce the addiction cycle for kids early on so that uh, as they grow up and come of age, they are well prepared for the gaming industry, right? So, uh, so pretend with me that this is true for a second. Like I said, I have zero evidence that this is actually the case. I just kind of pause it in my head that this is what happens. Uh, so, so go with me that it's possible and maybe even that it's true. So, uh, so fun and games are good things, right? Like play is a really good and constructive thing. Delightful play is a good gift that God has given us. But here's, here's the thing about insidious things. Insidious things get their subtlety from good things, right? So and, and often what happens is insidious things have gained a foothold before you recognize that they're insidious. Right? This is what is happening with the game. The game looks fun and appealing until before long you realize that the game has created an addiction and reinforced a pattern that is really easy to take with you into adulthood and uh, lose your money, right? So, so this is 
for what it's worth, the historic nature of the world we live in, right? This is the nature of the prince of the power of the air. He takes something that is good, uh, something that has uh, kind of a good nature to it, but then he, he takes it and he warps it and it subtly creates this insidious thing. He works them out in ways that have harmful effects. Right? This is the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, okay, so that's the reality. And then here's like the good news. Like as Christians, we bear good news that Jesus entered this insidious world. Right? Like if insidiousness is the pattern, subtly taking things that might seem good and making them play out in ways that have harmful effects, like that's just the way things work here. The good news, like Jesus has entered this insidious world. So we're going to consider John chapter 1 today because it tells us about Jesus who entered in, and he is kind of presented as the counteractive agent to the insidiousness. Like he's presented in John chapter 1 as deity, as life as light, as truth, as grace. And each of these ways that Jesus is presented uh, kind of is set against the world and the insidious nature of the world, right? Because it is a world that is confused about uh, meaning and purpose. It is a world that is spiraling in death, right? It is a world that is overshadowed by darkness. It is a world that is governed by intolerance and Jesus comes into that insidiousness. So, uh, so just a, a note real quick. What I recognize is that as we read John chapter one and as we talk about some of the concepts that are presented here, we're gonna be dealing with concepts that are very familiar to us probably, right? Because we're watching John essentially answer the question for his audience, who is Jesus, right? And, and we've heard a lot of sermons and teachings about who Jesus is, right? So to break us out of our familiarity, I want us to be answering simultaneously a, a, another question, and that question is, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Like, why does who Jesus is matter for your friends? Why does it matter for your neighborhood? Why does it matter for your workplace? Why does it matter for your municipality? Why does it matter for the waiters and waitresses that you find coming to meet you at your table? Why does who Jesus is matter? Because here's the reality. Like if Jesus never shows up, we only have insidiousness. Like that's all we have. We persist in confusion. We persist in death, in darkness, and in intolerance. But church, Jesus has come, right? He is the antidote. He is the healer. He is the one who sets things right. So uh, we're going to start this series this week by getting really clear on Jesus so in the past 18 months, I have heard a term that I didn't know existed, but over the course of the past 18 months, it has been repeated again and again in social media and podcasts and radio. And so here is the term. The term is deconstruction, right? So, uh, so what we're told is uh, that, that many young adults today are deconstructing their faith, which uh, essentially means that it's a way of saying that they're on a journey to discover what do I believe or what should I believe. And it is used, it's a word used frequently of those who are going through a process of actually rejecting truths of the Bible. So, so here's kind of what happens when you say, I'm deconstructing. 
like suddenly many, many people are very interested in what you have to say, right? Before you were deconstructing, they were not so interested, but now that you are deconstructing, they are very interested in what you have to say. Like the less you are sure that you know, it's interesting, the more influence you have. The less you are sure that you know, the more influence you have. Now, it's doubtless that once you say you're deconstructing, yes, there are some people in your spheres of influence that you will disappoint. And for what it's worth, many people, like some people, after they go through this process, they actually end up more committed to their faith in Jesus than they were beforehand, right? But to say, I'm deconstructing, is essentially to say, I don't know what's true. And the more people say this, the more they're listened to. So imagine you're Satan for a second. Like, I, I don't think any of you are Satan, right? But, but I just want you to imagine with me that you are Satan for a second. And you have a specific goal. Your goal is to prevent people from finding life and following Jesus. Like, that's it. That's outright. So what would you do? What strategy would you employ? Well, first you might, like, give a special feature to anyone who challenges what we currently know about Jesus. Right? You, you'll make them appear on news networks. You'll set them on the History Channel. You put them in these places where they're kind of elevated, that message, right? The second thing you might do, you might generally kind of give cultural influence to those who question the status quo of things. Like, why is this like this? Is this okay that it's like that? The third thing you might do is you, you might actually, like, make it a noble trait to appear confused about things. <coughs> like, if, uh, if I'm the enemy and I want to kind of create a culture that is willing to wholesale reject truths that are given in the Bible. Like, I think it would be a good thing to create a culture where, like, if I say that I'm confused, I'm actually given more credibility. The fourth thing that you might do is you might allow feeling to become uh, a primary tool that people use to evaluate right and wrong. Feeling as opposed to fact or information. And the fifth thing that you might do is you might actually like highlight and celebrate people on social media who happen to be in the process of deconstructing their faith, right? So you take all of this and add it all up and what you actually get is constant and continual confusion about Jesus. And not only that, but, but you lose influence the moment that you actually speak with clarity about Jesus, Right? If, if confusion is the way to go and you speak with clarity, that actually means that you lose influence. So all of this adds up and it creates a very insidious reality. So with all of that in mind, uh, this morning we have two realities to address. So the first reality that we need to address this morning is this. We need clarity for ourselves about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews, he has just talked about uh, the amazing wonder of who Jesus is. And this is what he says immediately after that. He says, therefore, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Right? Like if there is a reality of confusion that is existent in the world out there, then it has a pull upon us that we may not even recognize and so we need clarity for ourselves about who Jesus is. But then the second reality that we need to address is this. We need to bring the real Jesus to other people. Like for what it's worth, the Christian church that John was writing to, when he wrote this letter, they had to address the same two realities that we're having to address this morning, right? 
The first reality, Christians needed clarity because the longer time went on after Jesus' resurrection, the more misinformation that people inserted about Jesus. Right, like when John wrote his gospel, different Christian groups were actually starting to rise up and say things like, Jesus wasn't really divine. Uh, Jesus didn't have a physical body. He was more like a spirit that moved around. Uh, Jesus thinks the material world needs to be rejected and we kind of just need to ascend beyond it and think spiritual things and escape from it. Right, and so all of this kind of added up. These are heresies that were actually presented in the day, but these different Christian groups kind of started spreading misinformation about Jesus, and John wanted to make sure that Christians knew that they knew that they knew who Jesus was. And then secondly, in that day, the the reality is, is that Christians were those responsible for carrying truth about Jesus to their friends and neighbors in the midst of all of that confusion. Right, like they didn't have internet, they didn't have a printing press, they didn't have televisions, they didn't have cameras. The only tool that they had were tables and meals with other people where they could build relationships and speak the truths about Jesus to their friends and neighbors. Right, like the, the, the rapid spread of the Christian ter- church was actually contingent upon every single Christian seeing themselves as an owner of the good news about Jesus and taking it and sharing it with the people around them. It relied, the success of the movement relied on all of God's people sharing Jesus with others, which means that people had to be particularly equipped in the way that they would share that information about Jesus. So the Apostle John, as he writes this kind of gospel, he is a pastor to these people. And he has lived a long time now, and he wants to give them truths about Jesus that help them address these realities. So this is how he starts his letter in John 1.1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In verse uh, 1, John 1, 1, this is, it, it simply starts with this section right here, and we're going to take this first phrase, in the beginning was the word. Uh, the word uh, word there actually means uh, logos. The Greek word that, that gives us that word is the word logos. And this is important for a few reasons. John is actually using this very specific word to communicate incredibly intentionally to his audience. In fact, instantly what he's doing is he is making a connection with the entirety of his audience. So, so some of the people reading this gospel are Jews. Some of the people reading this gospel are Greeks or non-Jews, which means that some of the people interacting with this will be, uh, they'll have some significant Bible knowledge. And, and some of the people interacting with this will have zero Bible knowledge. Right? They'll, they'll be coming at this from two directions. But when John writes this phrase, in the beginning was the word, both would have found incredible significance in this phrase. Right? So to a Jew, they, uh, when they read the words, in the beginning was the word, actually they would get transported back to the book of Genesis. Back where God spoke and things were created. In the beginning, God spoke. God's word was put out, and things organized themselves around God's word. Like, what, what the Jewish person knows is that when God speaks, you get life, and growth, and light, and power. 
Like what the Jewish person knows is that when God speaks, everything must obey God's word. Like it is his command. It is his rule. It is his power. It's his authority, right? All of this is true about God's word. So for Jews, the word logos to them means it's the engine of God's power. In the beginning was the engine of God's power. When God speaks, things happen. So then to a Greek or a non-Jew, they kind of get transported to a different concept, right? Uh, This word for them speaks of uh, kind of origins or foundations of things. Like think of uh, kind of your subjects in school. Every subject in school had a logos, had a foundation, right? And this would have been common thought for any Greek person. Right, uh, the logos is a foundational or a fundamental concept. So in math, like the logos of math is the integer, right? Like the single unit, the number is the kind of the, the foundation of the idea of math so that you can't do math without the single integer, right? So, so when they hear the logos, they hear that kind of there was a first foundational concept. In the beginning, there was a first foundational concept. So for non-Jews, they hear, when they hear logos, the foundation of everything. <coughs> right, so, so even though these two groups hear this phrase differently, here's what they both are significantly aware of. For both of them, this word means the meaning of all existence. Right, like So whether it's God who created everything or whether it's some foundational concept that existed at the beginning for both of these two groups, what they would bring it back to is the meaning of all existence. Right, so you want to talk about a subject with a lot of confusion? Like spend any, any time talking with a person about ideas of ultimate meaning and purpose. Like for the, for the people who are reading this, it, it might have been the affairs of the pagan gods that gave things ultimate meaning and purpose. It might have been their own personal moral perfection or performance that gave ultimate meaning and purpose. Uh, for some, it could have been their trade or profession that gave ultimate meaning. For some, it was the role of Caesar and the role of the state that kind of gave things ultimate meaning. For some, it was power or dominance and the ability to kind of exert dominance over your spheres of influence that that kind of gave ultimate meaning. For some, it was just about intellectual ascent or transcendence. Like if you can escape this physical world and kind of just think thoughts and get out of the material, then then you will be able to um, kind of have that ultimate meaning or purpose. And the whole point of all of that is this. Everyone has their own set of messages about ultimate meaning. Like every person, like, and this is a jumbled reality for the people who are encountering these concepts, right? And the same is true for us today. Like we have a slew of messages coming to us about meaning. But John, he doesn't outright address any of those messages, Right, like he could set them out and weigh them against each other, but he doesn't do that. And spe- like instead, what he does is that he speaks with remarkable clarity. He goes on in, in ch- uh, verse one. After he says, "In the beginning was the Word," he says this, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So remember, for Jews, this is the engine of God, God's power. For non-Jews, it's the foundation of everything, but they both kind of bring it together, and uh, at the core, it's the meaning of all existence, right? 
And, and, and what this says is that the core of the meaning of all existence was with God. And that it was God. This is, like, this is what it's saying, uh, essentially. It's, it's saying that like, God did not somehow decide in himself what the meaning is. Like God did not storyboard the meaning uh, and kind of put a bunch of them out there and picked the one that best fit. It's simply that the meaning always was. Like the meaning was from the beginning. It has always existed with God. And in fact, the meaning is God himself, right? God's personality and this meaning are inextricably linked together. Right, so, so John is speaking and he gives remarkable clarity about things that, for what it's worth, philosophers wax for hours and days talking about and nobody establishes anything clear. But John, in uh, just kind of this short phrase, uh, has established remarkable clarity. He is speaking about issues that have become quite confusing to people around him and actually quite confusing to people in the church because of all kinds of false teaching. And so these words so far, they, uh, as people interacted with them, as they heard them, they would have created some hmm in his audience. But, but it still kind of makes sense, right? Like it still makes sense for the Jew that that ultimate meaning existed in the beginning with God and that God himself is ultimate meaning, right? Creation exists for the glory of God. That would have been easy for a Jew. Gentiles, uh, it would have been easy to say, you know what, an unmoved mover, right? Because that's what they would have thought of when they thought of foundation. Like somebody at the beginning who started everything. Like that would naturally give meaning to everything that he moves that comes after him, right? So, so that works, right? But then in the next verse, he drops a bomb. Verse two says this. It says, he was in the beginning with God. Right, so, so John goes out of his way to talk about this logos. And typically what you can think as you read this phrase is that John is maybe restating himself here. But this goes beyond restating himself. Right, because what he does in this phrase is that he gives the logos, this concept of kind of the source of all meaning, he gives it a personal pronoun. Right, so what he does when he says this is he's saying, we're not just talking about ideas, we're talking about a person. Right, the meaning of all existence is a person who is from the beginning and is inextricably linked to the personality of Yahweh if you're a Jew or if you're a Greek, is inextricably linked to the unmoved mover. Right, so okay, so we are, we're 24 words. Like, John has not been writing for very long. We're 24 words into John's letter to the culture of his day, and he has already made it crystal clear. There is a universal meaning. That universal meaning is a person, and that person is God. Okay, so then from there, he goes on. So let's look at verse 3 together. In John 1, 3, it says, All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. 
So, um, so as to ensure his audience is kind of not confused about what he is saying, this is what he does. He kind of clarifies himself. Uh, so he says, kind of speaking of this logos, this person who was from the beginning, he says, you know what? Uh, creation doesn't happen without him. Existence doesn't happen without him. Actually, not one piece comes without his putting it there. Like it doesn't show up without him kind of stepping in and making sure it shows up. Right? So it's not just that he gives meaning to existence, but John is saying that there would be no existence at all if he didn't do it. Right? So there are a few other places in the New Testament that speak with this kind of clarity. And the book of Colossians is one because it's speaking of the same person, right? And uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So when it says that he is before all things, Right? It's essentially saying like he is the first order of business. Right? So this Logos was creator. And not only that, but then it says like he held things together. Like he is sustainer. Right? Like if he was not actively holding things together at a molecular level, like somehow it would all just fly apart. Right? So, so John has stepped in and he has given a lot of clarity about this Logos. So just to kind of uh, remind us of where we are. We need to reconsider the confusion, right? Because John is speaking clarity into the midst of a reality of confusion. So let's reconsider the confusion because Satan has successfully, the enemy has, at various times in history, created high levels of confusion in society, right? <coughs> like he's created a scenario where truth and meaning and real significance is all elusive at best, right? Like this was true in John's day and it's just as true today. Like in the church, you get things like heresies and deconstruction that create confusion for a lot of people. Outside of the church, from their perspective, they, they see that Christians really don't agree about anything. They get messages like, you know what? You can determine your own meaning for yourself. The world is what you make of it. Uh, you can identify as whatever you want to identify as and you will be celebrated for it, right? You can get meaning from your career or profession. You can build your own religion that works for you and kind of let that determine your meaning, right? And, and the narrative, like maybe the world was created, uh, maybe we evolved, but you know what? It, it doesn't matter. Life is what you make of it. Right? And maybe you're questioning your faith. You know what? Good for you. It's healthy for you to be questioning your faith. And maybe you're doubting. You know what? Uh, everyone doubts. God is okay with your doubt. Right? And so when they receive messages like this, it doesn't bring clarity to anything. It just allows confusion to persist. And this is kind of the, the cultural and societal water that we swim in. This is the air that we breathe. It is, like to articulate it simply, it's this. The more confusion you have, well, then the more meaning you get to make for yourself. The fewer things that are made clear for you, the more things that you get to make clear for yourself. Right? This is 
the cultural reality that many of your friends and your neighbors are wading through. And for what it's worth, many of them have become numb to it. Like they don't uh, recognize it outright. Many of them have kind of accepted it as assumed truth. And many have waded through it and found their own meaning and built their lives on that meaning. And for what it's worth, like we should not be foolish. It is pulling at us too. Right? So that's why, back at the beginning of the, the, the sermon here, I, I cited Hebrews chapter 2. When the writer of Hebrews calls us to pay much closer attention to these things. Right? Because the pull is incredible to drift away. And the insidiousness of the confusion that we live in is a reality. And the other reality is, like, it would persist forever. If it were allowed to go on, the confusion would persist. And meaning would be elusive and unclear and confusing. But 2,000 years ago, John spoke into the confusion of his day and his words reverberate from that day to us where we are now, to us in our confusion. And they tell us that there is clear meaning. And he is a person. Right? That person was with God. And that person is God. And everything exists because of him. And all of those listening to you and reading those words would at one time have their mind Alone yet again when John writes in verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us the logos the source of all meaning the one who brings clarity he didn't just stand outside of our confusion he entered into it he became like us he took up residence with us so that we might know him. And then in verse 17, it finishes up this section. It says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And at this point in John's letter, the clarity of his message comes through because now we know that the logos is not just any person, but he is a specific person. So church, the good news for us this morning is this. In a world confused about meaning, Jesus is clarity. Okay, so, so what? So what? I have two to share with us this morning. My first one is this. Church, be unmoved on who Jesus is. Be unmoved on who Jesus is. Jesus, as like we've read this morning, Jesus is creator. Jesus has always existed. Jesus has been with the Father from the beginning. Jesus is the source of all the meaning in the universe. Everything exists for and because of Jesus. Right, like this is all the truth about who Jesus is. And the reality is, is that there are constant tools at work to move us from our certainty in those things. Right, so I just want to highlight four tools of confusion that are at play today. <coughs> four tools that are seeking to move us off of clarity on who Jesus is. 
The first tool is this, a multiplicity of religions, right? So, so if you have uh, a multiplicity of religions, then that easily creates the question, how do I know if mine is right? Like, how can I really for sure know that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is who he says he is? Right, And so uh, the good news is John writes an entire gospel. He doesn't just start here. He ends it, and he ends it with Jesus' resurrection. Right, Historical documentation of Jesus' miracles, his death, and his resurrection that eyewitnesses caught and died to, to, to stay true to, to stay convinced of, that actually happened, and they continued believing. No other religion has the claim uh, that is verified by so many sources that the, the, the one who founded our religion died and rose from the dead. So uh, against a multiplicity of religions, you have a Jesus who is resurrected. The second tool of confusion that will seek to move you from your clarity in Jesus is a reframing of Christianity. This is something that's happening actively right now. Bible-believing Christianity is increasingly viewed with disdain. Like Christianity is being reshaped and the vision of Christianity in our society is being reshaped from something that is good and noble to something that is evil and manipulative. Right. So there is a narrative built and progressing that Christianity has held power for a long time and has oppressed and manipulated people uh, with its power. And so if you are anti-oppression, what you actually need to do is not just uh, reject oppressors, you need to reject Christianity, right? And so the, the temptation for us when we hear things like that and hear people doing that is gonna be to turn those people into enemies and attack them. But here's the thing, Christ does not call us to do that. Christ calls us to love those people sacrificially. So that Christians have enjoyed kind of this place of nobility in culture for such a long time should actually be surprising to us because Jesus told us to expect otherwise. Right, so if we are unmoved on who Jesus is, we actually should expect to have evil and malice slung at us and spoken of us. And we should prepare to respond like Jesus would respond. Not flipping tables with them, but loving our enemies, going the extra mile and turning the other cheek, right? So as Christianity is reframed in the culture around us, we need to sit with the reality that Jesus called us to expect these things. The third tool that will come against us is a rebranding of what God has made good, right? So, so examples, sex has been rebranded from requiring covenant to requiring consent, Right, uh, gender and sex have been uh, now disconnected from biology and redefined by personal preference. So to insist that the connection should remain there is actually to be oppressive, right? That's the narrative that's uh, presented. Marriage has been rebranded from a permanent union to something that is temporary and dependent on my happiness. All of this kind of says that these things derive meaning from within the self. Whatever you decide is right for you is what you should do. Whatever makes you happy is what you should do. And if we play by these rules, if we allow ourselves to play by these rules, we're not letting Jesus define the meaning for us. right? And the fewer places that we let Jesus define the meaning, then that, the more like we, likely we are to see him as irrelevant in other places in our lives. Right? So, so it, as 
kind of these tools rebrand what God has made good. We need to leave no place untouched by the connection that, uh, to meaning that Jesus offers. Let, let Jesus kind of define everything for us. And then the fourth tool that's coming against us is kind of implanting accusatory questions about God. These are truths about Jesus that kind of have been settled over the years. The place of God in the universe has kind of been settled since the beginning. But if you're engaged with any kind of media, you know that the things that get the most playtime are the ideas that call these concepts into question. Right? So, so Satan's strategy since the beginning has been to say, like, these uh, four little words. Did God really say? Like ever since the beginning, Satan has been calling God into question. And we especially grab onto these things when we are in any form of pain. We're looking for a way to blame somebody else or to get ourselves out of our pain and to say, uh, so we ask questions like, you know, would a good God really let this happen? Right? And while I can't give all the answers to why your pain exists, I can tell you that Jesus gave meaning to painful human experience by entering into painful human experience, right? And being with those who are in pain and allowing himself, allowing pain to happen to him. So don't be swayed into casting accusations against him, right? We need to stand firm in who we know Jesus is. My second so what this morning is this. We need to stand firm, but then we also need to bring Jesus to those who are disconnected from true meaning. Right, so again, we have a temptation. The temptation is to turn those who don't believe like us, think like us, act like us, to turn them into enemies, to say that they are corrupting the truth. They're taking away our cultural ground. We need to fight them. We need to get it back. But Jesus calls us to love them, right, and to recognize their situation like he recognized ours. So, so confusion is an insidious vortex that at one time held all of us captive. But the gift that we have for people stuck in this vortex is this, right? that the meaning and purpose of all of the universe has come. And his name is Jesus. And there is no reality that should more quickly move me to my friends and neighbors who don't know him because while they're scrambling and confused about meaning he provides clarity right that that this one who we are called to carry into the world is the one who brings meaning to everything so church let us bring jesus to those who are disconnected from true meaning would you pray with me Jesus, I thank you that you have so clearly revealed yourself to us. That you have convinced us of the truth of who you are. And if there's anybody listening this morning who has not become convinced of the reality of who you are, I pray right now your Holy Spirit would pierce their hearts, that you would convict them, and that you would help them see that you bring meaning to every single thing in the universe. That even right now, you would lead them to make a profession or a confession of faith in you. That you would lead them to be done with trying to define meaning for themselves and let you define it. Right? And for each of us, Lord, as we are pulled by this world to create meaning for ourselves and to swim into the confusion, convince us of the truth of who you are. And then finally, help us to see and love our neighbors who are stuck in the confusion.
Help us to bring you clearly to them. We pray all, all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I want to read uh, Colossians chapter 1 for us as we close this morning. This is what it says in verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross Alliance Bible Church I want to first of all as you leave this morning don't just leave and say bye uh, but interact with this a little bit this is one of the um, you know as we are separated let's let's continue to have some interaction I I'd invite you um, in the chat this, as we kind of depart to, to share how did God use this message to teach or train or challenge or encourage or equip you? What is God doing through this for you? Share this with others as we kind of continue to remain separate. But then finally, I'd just like to say, church, even though we can't be together, it is a joy for us to know that we are uh, gathered together in spirit around Jesus, worshiping and praising him in our hearts today. So thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning.